this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey, this episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder System. I had the opportunity to interview Stephanie Breedlove the other day. She sold her $9 million payroll company for a cool $54 million. How does she do it? She focused on the eight things that drive company value. Things like what we call the Switzerland structure, monopoly control, recurring revenue, all things you're going to evaluate in your own business using the Value Builder score. It takes about 15 minutes to complete the survey. Go to valuebuilder.com. You got to love the Aussies. Next up, you're going to hear from Damien James, an Australian who built the company Dimple into a business that generated $11 million in revenue, $2.3 million of EBITDA. He sold it for a cool $13.4 million, which represented just a hair shy of six times EBITDA. Have a listen for who he sold it to. He sold it to a company called Zenitas. And in particular, listen for the strategic rationale Zenitas used to buy the business. I think that can inform you no matter what industry you're in about how strategics make acquisitions. Um, Listen to when Damien hired his CEO. I was frankly surprised at how early in the company's development that Damien actually hired a CEO, but I love the way he incentivized his CEO and the way he thought through the process of finding a leader for his company. Uh, when they went to sell it, listen for how he avoided an earnout, a little clever tactic they used to avoid an earnout. He talks a little bit about, frankly, life after the sale and after a big party, uh, some of the pitfalls that uh, he had to avoid to uh, in life after the sale. And like any good Australian, he comes up with a few different words of his own. Listen to ag- alligator mouth financials and shags, which is a play on BHAGs. Any event, I'll let Damien tell you the rest of the story. Damien James, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. G'day, John. How are you, mate? I'm great. I understand you're in the business of fixing old people's feet. <laughs> We are, and a lot okay, of. Okay, how, uh, how do you how do you stumble into that one? Uh, well, gee, that is a that there's a long story. I, I, I you know, growing up, I had two dreams. I wanted to be you know, either an AFL footballer or a uh, or run a successful business like my dad. Long story short, I realised pretty early that I wasn't going to make it as an AFL footballer. So I turned my focus to uh, business and. Um, registered my first business when I was 11, which sounds way more impressive than what it is. Looked at the landscape, where am I going to run a business? As a teenager, spent a lot of time in, you know, dentists and orthodontists and and felt that although they were great practitioners, sometimes they weren't necessarily great business people. And so I thought if I could get some experience with business through my teens, uh, and then get into the, the health industry later on with uh, the underpinnings of some you know, business disciplines that might might put me in a good spot. And looked at, uh, you know, health is obviously a broad sector. Looked at it, what part do I want to get into? You know, um, podiatry really stood out because the population was getting older. So there's growing demand. Podiatry is also unique because, you know, if you treat someone, you see them every six weeks. So you had repeat business. And, um, and yeah, so I, I enrolled in that course. I was a horrible student, uh, almost got kicked out a few times. But wait, wait uh, you, be, you, you enrolled to become a podiatrist? 
Yeah, oh, yeah, wow. okay. yeah. I know, complete madness. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was it, – look, it was a bit of a struggle because um, – Look, I can sit here and say that, you know, I was distracted because I was running another business, which I was. But, yeah, I was a young man in my 20s and, you know, I was also drinking a fair bit of beer and playing pinball and chasing girls and and not studying, you know, too much. I, I really just wanted the piece of paper so I could then start a, um, you know, a business in the sector. So um, I certainly came at it from a different angle. Uh, but I uh, really do love the profession. It's one of the few professions where someone – can uh, walk into your practice or you can treat someone and, you know, they, they're immediately pain-free. So uh, a lot of reasons to really you know, love the business. So it's been great. Absolutely. So so tell us about the, the forming of the company. It was called Dimple. I'd love to know the yep. history of the name, by the way. It's a cool name. Yeah, well, it is now. It wasn't before. Uh, it used to be called Aged Foot Care, which I – often told people I think was the the unsexiest business name in the entire world and I, I still maintain that to be true um, it described exactly what we did um, but we're a we're a podiatry company and so we we provide foot care to um, residents living in aged care facilities and so we're contracted by those facilities to come in every six weeks and provide that service to their residents. How did you uh, pick aged uh, residents? How did you pick that? Because you could have yeah. set up a high street store and had people of all yeah. different ages. How, how come? How did you land on that? Yeah, well, as I said, look, I was keen to run a business um, in the uh, in, you know, in, in podiatry, and so you know, I was six months out from graduating. I thought, look, it, it appears that I am actually going to finally graduate from this course. So, you know, what what business am, am I going to run? And I'd had a bit of experience running businesses and I, you know, I, I was really drawn to B2B businesses and um, so looked at, um, you know, the environment and really there was a, an opportunity uh, in the aged care setting and the, the way the, the care model was working back then, so we're talking back in you know, 1997, uh, was that the podiatrist who owned the clinic in an area provided care to to the residents living in the local aged care facility and obviously their baby was their clinic and so they'd focus on that and then at six o'clock at night they'd, they'd go out to the facility and uh, as you can appreciate you know people in their 80s and 90s you know it gets to 6 p.m and you know they're, they're in bed or on the weekends they're with their families and so I, I just thought that there was a better way to deliver to to deliver the care and so rather than do two things I thought look, let's just focus on the the aged care part, um, it meant that our capital costs were much lower. Um, but as I said, it was, you know, it was a B2B business and it meant that, you know, with a, a 50 cent stamp and a direct mail letter and a phone call, you know, I could pick up 100 patients at once versus maybe running a clinic, spending a lot of money setting it up, running a $400 ad and only getting two people come in. So um, thankfully, you know, it seemed to be a good idea and the, we essentially uh, disrupted an industry before disruption was part of common business vernacular, and the business grew quickly. And today, Dimple is uh, you know, the largest provider of healthcare to the Australian uh, uh, aged care industry. We we work in five hundred and 
50 odd uh, aged care facilities, market share of about 24% and work with 17 of the 20 largest uh, providers. Incredible, incredible growth over over that 20 year, am I getting it right, 20 year run. What was the, in the early days, what were the biggest mistake? I mean, if you think of your biggest mistake in the early days, um, what sort of kind of major mistakes did you make early? Yeah, oh, look, there was a, there's a big one. Uh, I, I I hired, you know, I, I am full on these days about getting, you know, the very best people throughout the business, and uh, and you know, and the reason why is I, I learned a valuable lesson a, a number of years ago. Ten years into our journey, uh, we hired someone who, you know, we, we didn't realise was uh, basically a, a serial fraudster. And I got them to manage the company. Yeah, keep in mind this is a, a long time ago, and this is before the the you know the amount of research that we could do on people was you know is much more comprehensive. And also, too, I was just far less experienced, and our recruitment processes are, are nothing like they are now. And 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 hired a bad apple, and and uh, yeah. Long story short, matey, you know, we got done over. Um, you know, staff were paid not to go to work, and. Uh, had to put the business into liquidation. I was also running another podiatry company and had to put that into liquidation. And so 10 years ago, I had to start all over again. So so that that, that was the biggest mistake. But I promised myself at the time that that, that was going to be the making of me. And I remember talking to a mentor that we still have now and telling him that sob story and, and expecting him to be quite sympathetic in his response. And he just said to me, well, you get the staff that you deserve. And I remember thinking, you know what? He's spot on. And so that was the biggest mistake was that, you know, we, we hired a bad apple and and from there, you know, really thought, well, if that's the damage a bad apple can do, you know, imagine what a whole lot of good apples can do. So yeah, yeah, that, that was a it was a mistake, but it was one that we thankfully learned from. How did you discover the fraud? Uh well I finally looked at the financials. So um, you know, back then I was uh yeah, quite frankly, mate, I thought I was a rock star. You know, I'd come into this industry, I started this business, it grew incredibly quickly. Within probably two to three years, it was easily Australia's largest podiatry company, and uh, then started a, a, another um, podiatry business and and got this person to to manage the other one, and was really uh, I, I just wasn't a well-rounded entrepreneur. You know, I was really into selling and marketing and, and, and focusing on that and left the financials to, to this person. And, and when I finally did have a look through the numbers, you know, uh, there was something clearly uh, awry. And, and, and when we noticed it and approached this person, they, uh, yeah, all hell broke loose, basically. I, so I yeah. guess for folks listening who may suspect or may have taken a similar sort of laissez-faire attitude towards their books, I'd be curious to know what it was, what line item you saw on your profit and loss statement that 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 gave you a sense that something was odd, something was not on. Yeah, look, I think that there's, I, I, if that's when you notice it, that the horse is probably already bolted. So I think there's other things to to look at. So this person was very controlling. They they didn't um, let you really have access to the financials very often. You know, everything they told you was, you know, it was always good news and everything was okay. 
Um, yeah, so, and, and to be honest, uh, you know, the, the books were deliberately, uh, he created such a mess, you know, that it was hard to actually distinguish, you know, what was missing. It was clearly that there was a whole lot of money missing, but it was, you know, it was, it was hard to sort of sift through, through it all. So you know, I really, you know, I encourage, you know, I feel like I've got a, this radar now, you know, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but in Australia we call it a bit of a bullshit detector. And, uh, you know, I just encourage people, if something seems a bit off or if someone seems a bit controlling, um, you know, just keep an eye on that and, and, and look into it. If it sounds too good to be true, you know, this person presented as, you know, fantastic at their job. Um, but when you dug into it, it was clear that they weren't. So, yeah. Time went on and you did build up the business back up. And, and ultimately, you hired Nick. Maybe talk a little bit about what that decision, how did you, how did you come to the decision to hire Nick? Yeah, yeah. Look, it was, uh, so we re- rebuilt the business and the, the management team that we had on a, at the time were great. And I, I'll be um, always eternally grateful for them helping us on our journey. But the business was growing, you know, some years uh, Forty percent. I think the last five years we averaged growth of about twenty-five percent. So it was always growing rapidly, and as you can appreciate, you know, sometimes you do outgrow your people. And and what I found was that we just we weren't hitting our numbers, and so we're always doing annual budgets, and you know, we're just way off with hitting those numbers, and and that was um, you know, becoming increasingly frustrating, and and decided that look, it was time to. You know, I made this promise to myself to go out and get the best people and, and maybe, you know, it was time to, you know, do that and, and go out and hire ahead of the curve and really swing for the fences and, and go out and get someone who, you know, was bigger than the role. So we knew the business was going to keep on growing. Let's get someone who, you know, uh, the business will actually, you know, grow with them. And so, um you know, you've got Nick Beckett involved, great CEO. He was the former CEO of uh, T2T, which is a, you know, a rapidly expanding uh, retail brand here in Australia, which was ultimately sold to, to Unilever. And so this, you know, sort of comparatively tiny little podiatry company. How, how much uh, revenue did, did you have at the time? Do you remember, David? Yeah, yeah. Look, we were, bottom line, we were only doing like about 150 200 a year and I remember going to the recruitment agent and you know it was first time we'd used one it was about 30k so it was a big risk I was like look you know it's it's time to see whether or not this thing can really flourish or fail and so I was happy to to spend the money it was it was a risk but we had a pretty comprehensive um, recruitment process back then and uh yeah, it's been a, a really special union. You know, Nick and I have completely different skill sets. I actually hired him as uh, the COO uh, and and I took the role as CEO. And then within probably less than 12 weeks, it was pretty clear to me that he was going to be a, a better CEO than me. And so I offered him the position and I took the role as founder. And I think from there, you know, we both flourished. Uh, we, we set up a, a, an ESOP, and so we both uh, had alignment with you know, you know, what we wanted to achieve from the business. And although we had a completely different skill set, you know, um, 
you know, we, we had exactly the same values. And so it's uh, it's been a, a great relationship and, and one that I think we both recognise as being, you know, very re- rewarding. I think a lot of people listening would love to find a nick for their company. The key challenge, though, is, is how do you compensate mm-hmm. a CEO? I mean, how much of the company did yeah. you have to give up uh, yeah. to get nick? Yeah, so so it was uh, it was we were a little fortunate in that Nick was looking for the next blue sky opportunity. You know, he'd done that with T two, and so sold to Unilever, and then decided to take some time off. You know, he he enjoyed being part of an entrepreneurial company, and so was was looking for something that yeah you know, he could make a, a material difference to. And and aged care you know w- was a growing industry. Uh, we were a, a market leader. Um, and I think he, yeah, he saw that and thought, look, he could take a haircut on the salary, but if we, if he got some, uh, equity, uh, and then we set up an ESOP where his equity grew as the business reached certain milestones, that that was going to be a win-win for both of us. So, so he took a haircut on the salary. Uh, he, uh, got 5% of the company and then we set up his ESOP where, um, at that stage, we got the business valued. It was valued uh, by three different uh, auditors. Um, it came back, the average was about 2.5 million, 2.54, I think it was. And so I said to him, look, I'll give you 5%, but you know, I could have got it to five. I could have got the business to um, a revenue of 5 million with the previous management team. So the 5% is up to 5 million. And then for every million over um, five million, uh, you'll get three percent equity, and that that went all the way up to twenty uh, percent. So Nick Nick bought into the company. Uh, we got alignment on that, and uh, it, it meant that you know we were able to keep him within the company, and his shares would vest if there was a liquidity event, which you know thankfully two and a half years later uh, there was. So um, yeah, good result for everybody. It sounds it. So to be clear, and again, a lot of people I think listening will be like, yes, I need to find my Nick. So you used a recruitment agency. So what we would call in North America, a headhunter. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so what was it about Nick that that made him stand out among the other candidates they brought forward? Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's. I think that's a really valuable question. The, the process, the approach that we took to this was uh, – yeah, it was a huge investment, and so obviously we, you know, we wanted to get a huge ROI, which we did. And so, I think you need to sort of break it into three parts. You know, when you you need to pick, obviously, the appropriate, as you guys call it, headhunter. But the way I describe the person that we were looking for, um, you know, I'm a big AFL football fan, and pretty much everybody in Melbourne here is, and so. As well as talking some of the functional stuff that we were looking for, I, I talked about a lot about the character and and used analogies of different football coaches and said, look, this football coach is like this. I don't want that sort of coach. This one's like this, someone that's galvanised the team and brought the team together. That's the sort of person we're looking for. And I remember the recruitment agent saying, you know, that's the the most vivid description of you know someone I've ever had. So so we gave ourselves the best chance to succeed, and then the 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 second part of the process was that we uh, obviously had, you know, the the you, you come back with a shortlist, you pick out the 
the um, you know the the most likely candidates, and, and we were absolutely spoiled. You know, there were I've since checked up on some of the other candidates, and and they're all flourishing as well. Uh, and but the important part I think we did was we 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 had a two stage process where we did the normal interview, got a feel for you know is this person the right cultural fit? Obviously, these people were all you know great. Um, yeah, in performance-wise, there weren't any issues there. But then to really establish who was the standout, we said, okay, anybody who got through to the second round, we wanted them to present on the key constraint that we were experiencing the business at that time or, or a different uh, project. Actually, for, for the CEO role, it was, okay, this is the business. We want to grow it. Uh, your next interview, come in and present to us on how you feel, you know, the business um, should execute against those plans. And, and you know, after the first round of interviews, Nick was head, uh, head, head with someone else. In fact, he was probably just slightly in second place. Uh, but then once he did the, uh, the presentation, you know, that's where he really shone and it was, it was clear, that, you know, th- this was, this was our guy. And so, so he brought him on board. And then, look, you know, with people like this, it's not just what they know, it's who they know. And so he was able to then bring on other people from T2, people that he knew were, you know, capable uh, and, you know, were, were a great fit for the team. And so, you know, we not only ended up picking up a great CEO, but you know, it was just transformational in terms of, you know, where our management team went to. We, we, we still went to market for some other roles and use that same process and it, it paid, you know, great dividends both times. But often it was getting great people in, you know, the rest of the management team lifted as well. Uh, and for others, the tide went out and, you know, it was it was clear who was wearing bathers and who wasn't. And, you know. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, that and, and, yeah mate, we, we also had a, a process where, you know, something that we also do just in terms of team, because for me it's all about, you know, people and, and everybody says that, but mate, we've all made the mistake of, you know, you've got someone and you just, you know, you you just don't think that they're the, the right fit for the business, but you just keep on ignoring it. We have a very disciplined uh, part of our uh, annual and quarterly um, strategic planning and review sessions where we actually have part of that, uh, those uh, two days set aside to going through and, and rating uh, every single one of our team members. And so we use the, the Jack Welsh system where you've got your, your A's, your B's, your C's, your D's, and we'd, we'd go through and, and anybody who was a C, you know, so poor performance, poor culture, you know, they had to be eliminated, you know, immediately. Uh, and for the um, uh, for the B's and the D's, you know, we needed to put a plan in place to, to help them. So with the Bs, you know, they were great culturally, but performance-wise, we, they weren't there. And that's where we'd have our A-graders come in and coach them and, and help take them to the next level. So there was a really active process of always reviewing the team because when you're a fast-growing company, you know, it's just natural that you, you do outgrow some of your team and you, you need to bring in some fresh blood. What were the cultural characteristics or the, of of that you were looking for? Like when you were describing to your recruiter, look, I want th- this coach and not this coach. Mm. What were the characteristics mm. of the coach that you were describing that mm. you were looking for? Yeah, it was, look, for me, it was someone who, you know, they put the business before themselves and, you know, there was a coach 
at that time who was well recognised as he came into uh, a football team. It had a few older players that probably expected to be delisted, but he came in and he said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. You know, you're part of the group. You've got a great amount of experience. Let's harness that. And so these guys were sort of re-energised, and that's what I was looking for, that sort of galvanising uh, identity who, you know, they weren't driven by ego, um, you know, and they were definitely results-orientated. I, I remember one of the questions, this is my favourite response to an interview question I've ever had. I asked Nick, you know, what's, you know, just tell me, you know, what's your number one uh, personal value and you sort of expect that someone's going to give you a pretty generic answer like they would have looked at it, your values like our values were do right be loved go beyond so I expected something that was sort of aligned with that um, and he just said to me mate you know I love winning I hate losing and I thought yeah so do I uh, you yeah, know I think I think this is our guy and so that that may make him sound um, a little bit uh, brash or direct and you know he certainly isn't but you know there's a guy in there who is you know very results orientated but understood that you know this is a business is a is an intellectual sport you know it, it's a it's a group of individuals who who all have a common goal like a sport and you know to success requires teamwork and so you know we were looking for someone who could really you know help bring the team together uh, and um, it was culturally aligned but was also able to you know, bring in some systems that you know, helped us to perform and, and execute against our plans and, and that's what happened. What made you change the job from COO to CEO? I know you mentioned earlier that it became clear but I'd be curious to know that sounds, uh, um, how would I describe it, that, that sounds uh superficial to me like what like that's a big decision to be in a, a chief operating officer and then a few months later say oh you know we're going to make the change and make them ceo and i'd love mm. to you know I, i'm sure a lot of people have had the idea of bringing in a you know a head of of the company or a president to, to offset but mm. there, but you'd made a big decision a change really what was it that yeah yeah, look, I, I think it, you, that's that's where you go back to your why. And look, for me, when I you know started the business, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, it's Brad Sugar's from Action Coach often defines a business as a uh, what is it? It's a uh, commercial, uh, profitable enterprise that works without you. And and that's what I was looking for. And 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 also too, yeah, I was sort of the heart of the business. Like I I I, I worked as a podiatrist at the start in these facilities. And, and I really recognised that it was the emotional comfort that the residents responded to. And, and so I was sort of the, the heart of the business. And, and when I was operating as a CEO, it was a very, I was operating in a very sort of conscious confidence way. Like it wasn't something that was very natural to me. You know, I'm, I'm more um, emotive and, and not as disciplined with, with some of the approaches. Uh, whereas Nick was, so um, so there was, you know, I, I wanted to step away from the business. Uh, you know, I had a capable set of hands, at, you know, in front of me who had already done it before. Um, so it was, think, you know, I, I was thinking beyond the business and thinking, you know, what do I want for my life, and um, you know, and what's in the business's best interest as well. And you know, and you know, one thing my dad taught me growing up, he 
he ran a business himself and he only he, like he taught me a lot of things but one of the two things I remember him teaching me was that you know it, it's it's about uh, your wallet not your ego and so you know I, I was I was fine to you know bring him on and, and elevate him up and and we really did flourish like as a founder you know I felt very very comfortable in that role and so I started to shine and you know Nick went to another level as well so how did yeah, you divide think, up the responsibilities like what what yeah. did he have in his plate and what did you have mm. as the founder? Yeah, yeah, that, that was a bit of a challenge. That was actually more of a challenge when I was CEO and he was COO because he was so so capable. Once it became, uh, you know, we, we made that delineation, it was it was very easy. Like, I, you know, I'm quite strong in the sort of strategic part and obviously had a lot of um, experience in the in the industry and, um yeah, it was it was someone who really helped to shift the the cultural barometer, and so it, it wasn't really something that we sort of had to sit down and work out. He was CEO, you know, he was responsible for running the company, and you know, I would do my thing, you know, when it was required, and and quite a few of those things just just came natural. You know, you'd be walking past someone's desk and you just hear something, or it was it was it was kind of good because. You've got the CEO focused on so many different things. It's such a fast-growing company, so many things happening. And then I'm in here and I'm just able to hear things. And so the, the way our relationship worked was that we would speak every night at about 5 o'clock. Uh, and you know, what I noticed was that uh, – well, actually what Nick pointed out to me was that I was sort of the agitator for improvement. So I would see little things that might have fallen through the cracks and then bring those to Nick's attention and we'd have a discussion about those and then work on those together. Yeah, I had the headspace and, uh, you know, the opportunity to to see some of these things that, you know, he just didn't have the opportunity to see. So, yeah, it was a really, really uh, productive, as was reflected in the fact that, you know, you know, within two and a half years, we're able to go from a valuation of 2.54 to 13.4. You know, clearly, you know, we did a lot of things right during that period to get it to that to that size. Yeah, no, I find that I find it uh, an incredible growth. So, so we went from 1997 to 2000, I guess, 14 ish. Uh, in in that period, got the business to a couple hundred thousand in profit, right? Uh, well, we went we went from uh, 1997 to 2006. Then you know, I had to put both businesses in liquidation because of the fraud, and so then had to start again. So it was really from 2006 that you know that's really when the business you know this this business had to start again. So we had to start all over again. So so it was uh, what was it? It was about a 10, 11 year journey. Right. So 2006 to 2014, you get it to $200,000 or so in profit. Mm, yeah. And then 2014 to 2017, you go from 200,000 in profit to 2.3 million in profit. Yeah. That's, yeah. Well, look, they're normal. <laughs> that's a pretty stunning yeah. number. <laughs> yeah. Look, uh, there, you know, there's some normalized numbers. Uh, you know, if you're committed to growing, you know, you Unfortunately, when you're a health company, you know, we, we, we had a pretty scalable model, but it's not a tech company. And so, you know, as you grow, you know, our 
um, expenses were growing as well. So it sort of it was a bit of a straight line. And what we really wanted to do was to sort of get that alligator mouth where, you know, revenue is continuing to scale up and the expenses comparatively are starting to fall down. And that's where we're starting to get our margins. And and that's what we did. You know, that was, uh, you know, just by uh, having a very disciplined approach to annual strategic planning sessions and quarterly planning sessions, you know, we were always looking at how can we, um, you know, refine our systems so, you know, they're more effective uh, and how can we um, be more productive. And and one of the things that we uh, identified was that, yeah, okay, we're a fast-growing business, but and as, as much as people would believe that we were a health company, we were actually a logistics company. You know, we, we had to have the right person at the right place at the right time. And if we didn't, it cost us money because the podiatrists were on salaries. So, you know, we, we, we had to, what we, one, one change that we made that really made a significant difference was what we would do at the start of every quarterly um, review or planning session was that we'd go through and we'd list what have been the wins and what have been the losses over the last quarter. So it start off with wins and you just write them all out. And it was actually a quite a rewarding process because you've got your head down, bum up so much that, you know, by the time you finish writing down all the wins, you look back and think, shit, you know, we've got a lot of good stuff really done. So that was that was a morale boost for the, for the management team. But what was really important was then when we did the losses or the challenges, it fully articulated to everybody in the room that was then going to start working on our quarterly plans you know, for the upcoming quarter or annual plans, if it was an annual planning session, of where the business was at. So everybody in the, new, in the room knew. And, and what that meant was that we, we understood it, – it basically meant that we stopped working in silos and we started to put in plans to address issues in the business. So, you know, if we were recognised that we were having some issues with recruitment in a particular territory, we would obviously dial down our growth targets in, in that area until we fixed that, that problem. That, that wasn't happening in the past. And so uh, operationally, the business wasn't gelling and that's where we were losing our margins. And, and so once we got, you know, the, the sort of the engine um, – you know, working um, in unison, you know, that, that's when the margins really started to open up for us. So, you know, that, that was a, a really, it sounds very simple, but it was a, a great way for the whole management team to really get a good read on, you know, where the business was at and why, you know, what were some of our deficiencies and, and what did we need to focus on? And, and that would drive our priorities for the, the you know, the, the upcoming quarter. Was the quarterly planning cycle something that Nick brought in? No, that look, that was that. He was actually a little cynical of that, I must say. Uh, he wasn't. I wouldn't say he was cynical. He he just felt that the approach was going to be a little bit of a cookie cutter because we we brought in one of our mentors, um, Rob Nankervis, from uh, the Gazelle system, and and we, look, we were already doing annual plans and quarterly planning sessions, but you know, prior to Nick, clearly they weren't working because you know we weren't hitting our numbers, and so. Uh, I wanted to make sure, you know, we got this great management team, you know, I wanted to make sure that all the intellectual horsepower in the room was focused on, you know, what we needed to do to improve the business. And so I didn't want anybody facilitating those sessions. And so we brought Rob in to facilitate those sessions. And, you know, that that, that too was a, 
you know, that was looking back, that was a great move. And, you know, we continue to work with Rob today. It was it was really important to have someone who could facilitate the session, but also too could sometimes see, you know, the trees from the forest and you have a bit of an independent thinker there. And it was also someone who this is what they do you know, as their job. So they just do it, you know, incredibly well. So so that that was something that um that was one of the few things that Nick learnt off me, I'd say. So <laughs> did Nick ever feel uh as the CEO second guessed by Rob? Because it's something to bring in a facilitator to lead those quarterly planning sessions. And on some level, it's a little bit of a report card for how Nick's doing as the CEO, isn't it? Uh, look, I think if you get the right person, like, you know, Nick, yeah, I mean, we all have an ego, but we're all there to, to, to win. And, um, you know, we're not, not all, as I say, I, I wanted his, his brain focused on, you know, where do we need to get, get the business. And so he, he was just a little concerned before we started the process that it was going to be a bit of a cookie cutter approach and maybe wasn't going to deliver as much value as what it did. But uh, yeah, once we, the first session, I, I think you start to think, yeah, this, this, this is a pretty good system. And by the time we finished the second system, you know, he's a, a huge advocate. So, so look, he never said that. I doubt he felt like that. He's not that sort of person. You know, we, we all fully realise that, you know, if you're going to succeed, you know, at times you have to bring in experts in particular areas and, and that's a case where we did that. So, and it worked out really well. And it's something that I, I'd encourage everybody to consider. What else did Nick do? I mean, if you could distill it down to one or two mm. major moves in that 10-year CEO uh, mm. to basically grow the valuation by tenfold in two and a half years. I mean, it's a stunning, stunning result. What what, what would you say mm. would be the one or two big moves that he made? Um, look, there was, I reckon there was probably about four things we did throughout the process. There, there were four key, key things that we, we, we did. We, we, we identified what the value drivers were of, of the business. So we had a BHAG, which was a 10 year goal, uh, but that wasn't resonating with any, any anybody. It was it was too. You know, most of our team were in their twenties. You know, they don't think what, what's going to be happening in ten years, and so we we uh, started to speak. So look, we, we'd had a lot of unsolicited unsolicited approaches to sell the business, uh, and so we knew that the business was valuable. We just didn't feel feel that it was saleable yet, and so. We started to go and speak to different M and A advisors and ask them, you know, what were the key levers that we needed to pull to, you know, really make sure that when we did put the business on the market, it was as shiny and attractive as possible. And the feedback we had was that obviously client retention was really important, growth was really important, and profitability was really important. So we we set uh, up three what we call shags which is small, hairy, audacious goals. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Shags. Yeah. Well, if you're from Australia and you knew what shag meant, you'd, you'd probably laugh even more. Um, it means the same uh, in North America, just to be clear. Oh, does it? Okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. All right. Yep. All right. No need to go any further. Um, but, but what we did was, so the, the three shags, you know, so retention, so we had a quality measure, so we used uh, an MPS score, so that was uh, 40 we had a, a growth goal, so uh, that was uh, you know that was about the number of residents we have relationships with. So at the start of the fifth, uh, 
the three-year process, we were at 50. We wanted to get to 70. We knew if we got to 70, we'd have 25% market share and, a, you know, it would be a dominant market share and a, a real strategic asset platform for someone else to buy. And we had a productivity measure, which we knew that if we got the productivity right, it meant operationally the business was gelling and, you know, we'd have some good uh, good numbers spread out the, the bottom end. So, so, look, that was the first thing. Uh, uh, operational alignment I've already already touched on. I think what, what Nick really helped to do really well was, you know, communication. It, it was just vital in this business. We were um, moving quickly. We had ambitious plans. And so we really upgraded our communication and, and accountability systems. And that meant, you know, uh, bringing up our, a second tier of um, leaders. We had uh, our mentor, Darren Reddy, he spent a lot of time training them because we knew that as the business grew, you know, we needed them to grow with us. Um, and as I said before, you know, we were constantly looking at the fundamentals of the business, you know, our our people, our systems, um, you know, our service, um, our marketing and sales and, and continually upgrading those and, and um yeah, everybody would have a one-page business plan um, uh, that would identify what their three – we'd have five priorities for the business for the year, and a lot of those would be related to the shags, and then everybody every quarter would have three main uh, goals that were, you know, smart goals. And so as part of the review process, we could look at those and say, you know, did you achieve that, yes or no? Uh, and so that that helped to keep you know all the departments and teams um, accountable as well. So so a broad array of things there, mate. Fantastic. Let's get into the actual sale itself. So at what point did you actually turn from building this business to selling it? What was the trigger? Um, yeah, that was look. It was it was funny. It was uh, it, it was it, it felt like it'd taken an eternity to build you know, this house. And finally, I got this you know, great management team and I was only working a day a week and then suddenly my CEO says to me, look, I, I think we should consider selling in the future. I'm thinking, geez, we've, we've just, you know, built this great business. Why do we have to, to do that? And, you know, I said to Nick, you know, w w what headwinds do you see? And there are a few things. What, what, what we were aware of was that uh, all of our competitors had been bought by PE firms. And so all their growth engines had gone from sort of four cylinders to eight, 10, 12 cylinders. And we were best of breed. You know, we, we deliberately just stuck to our knitting and we wanted to get as much market share as possible because we knew that that was going to be a valuable asset. And we knew we did it better than anybody else as well. But our competitors uh, offered, a you know, the whole spectrum of health services into aged care. Uh, several which were much more profitable and easier to run than podiatry, such as physiotherapy. And what they started to do was that, you know, when uh, contracts were up for review and the tender process, they started, um, you know, offering the podiatry service at a heavily discounted rate, which was a, a loss leader. And um, and so we, we didn't really lose any business through that, but it was certainly a tap on the shoulder to say that, you know, yeah, we've got some significant competition here. You know, we need to keep an eye on this. So that that was the first thing. The real uh, canary in the coal mine, though, for for me, was when we recognised that 
you know, the business was starting to move or the industry was starting to move from uh, a B to B model to a B to C model. So rather than facilities deciding on who were the um, contracted services coming into the facilities, consumers were now starting to make those decisions. And, you know, we had a national footprint. The business was a B to B business. Having to re-engineer it and turn it into a B to C was just, you know, it just would have been easier just to, to start another business. And so and so that, that was the, the moment that we thought, yeah, the writing's on the wall. We've got three years. Let's really focus on these shags, you know, r- really, you know, tick off each of those and then we'll go to market with something that's, um, you know, hopefully, um, you know, considered pretty valuable and, and saleable. It sounds like, Nick, when he joined you, the conversation of getting acquired was already on the table. Um, it may be in his head. I mean, he, look, he'd been through this process before with, with T2. So, yeah, uh, for, for me, I was quite happy. You know, the business was, you know, we were executing against our plans and you know, I was doing what I felt I was good at and, you know, I was you know, able to you know, enjoy my life. And so I was probably, you know, quite happy with the status quo. Um, but Nick, to his credit, you know, he, he was, you know, looking at headwinds and, and um, you know, seeing where we were at. And look, you know, these are all processes that you want to do. So you, you can be in a um, – if you, you don't have to sell. You know, we, we, we had a good business. but And if you go through these processes, you'll end up with a stronger business. But I think you're right that, that Nick was much more aware of – you know the the value of the business. You know was was going to be in st- selling what was a really strategic platform for a potential acquirer to come into you know a very attractive industry and go from sort of zero to hero overnight. You know you could come in with zero market share and acquire twenty four percent market share and then start to funnel the other services in and and that's why you know Zenitas. Uh, purchases. They already had all these other services, physiotherapy, doctors, things like that, and so they saw this as a as a you know a strategic acquisition to start funneling those services through that, as well as um, acquiring an incredibly capable management team and a business that had a strong pedigree in logistics. You know, they're, they're, yeah. So, so yeah. You, you thought that the strategic value was you had all these relationships with the elder care homes. A buyer could come in. You're doing podiatry, but that doesn't I mean that, that that's one service that these older residents need. There are lots of other yep. services, and 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 this Zenitas was one that that could do that. Before we get right into Zenitas, t- take us through the next step. So so you decide to sell. Did you did you hire a banker? Did you sell it yourself? Like wh- what was the next step? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I said, Nick had been through this process before. It wasn't just what he knew, it was who he knew. And so, um, yeah, this is where I think it's really important to to focus on working with experts. You know, this is a pivotal moment in any entrepreneurial journey and you want to be working with the very best people. And so we went out there, had a look, but T2 did it through Deloitte, uh, M&A, were really happy with the work that they'd done. Uh, and so we went with Deloitte M&A and, you know, Xander and, and all the boys out there did a fantastic job. So we worked with them. We worked with uh, Clarendon's lawyers, uh, Alex and Alex. They, they did a great job. And 
And look, you know, everybody said, you know, um, post-exit, how seamless the, the process was. You know, we were uh, – there are there other things that do actually that, that are probably worth mentioning was that, you know, one thing that we started doing was getting the managers to write a monthly um, management um, report uh, 18 months out from the sale. And so when potential buyers came into the business, you know, they had access to all that information and – you know, for me, you know, when you're buying something, what you, what you want to buy is certainty. You want to know that there's no skeletons in the closet. And they had, you know, they could go through and read these reports and, you know, they could see how well organised this business was and get a real feel for the journey of the business and the, you know, wisdom, I suppose, of some of the decisions that we'd made. You know, you'd read these monthly management reports and you could you could really see the journey and you could see the the blue sky going ahead as well. And so, you know, we were very aware that if we did those, you know, that was going to increase trust and, you know, likely going to increase the, the value of the business as well. Got it. So you hired Deloitte. Uh, they yep. they sex the business up, get it into a book, I'm assuming, and then yep. take it to market. How many yep. bidders did, did they did they bring to the table? Yeah, this is a... Uh, uh, it, it was a, an interesting process because at the start, you know, everybody loves you. You know, we'd had unsolicited approaches and and so, um, you know, when the um, initial communication went out to the, the buyer's universe, you know, a lot of people came back and were very interested. But at the at the pointy end, uh, and, we, you know, we, we got to do management presentations. We, we picked the three companies that we thought were, um, you know, the, the best – uh, potential acquirers and um, Deloitte you know, helped guide us on that. I, I hadn't ever heard of Zenitas. There were some other what I'd call logo brands, like you know companies that anybody in Australia would be aware of that were at the table, and and that was really exciting. You know, I, I think personally I was a little seduced by the the opportunity to sell to to a big brand like that. But you know, upon reflection, I'm really pleased with the decision that we made because we've we've joined a it's a listed company, but it's quite young and quite entrepreneurial, and so it, you know, it does feel like a, a good fit for us. So, yeah. So, you, so you've narrowed it down to three companies, yep. uh, two of which were sort of brand name, household name yep. companies in Australia, and Zenitas. Yep. You have the mm. management meetings. Did all three of those firms come to you with a letter of intent of price that they yeah, were willing to a pay? Binding. Yeah, yeah. Well, at the end. Uh, we had we had uh, two two binding uh, offers, and Zenitas's was eighty uh, percent uh, cash uh, and a twenty percent earnout. And you know Nick and I had said right from the start, there's no way we're doing an earnout because we know that we know the caliber of the management team, and we know that they're going to be you know swallowed by this larger ecosystem and i just don't like earnouts you know like i think that with a business you all should be rowing in the same direction and you all should be looking at um you know your focus should be on three years time or five years time not in nine months time or, or 12 months time whenever the earnout um um you know um, lapses so uh, so what we did was we said, look, we, we really like the Zetatas strategy, and we thought that it was a you know, it was a good fit for both companies. And so we turned around and said, look, we won't do a twenty percent earnout, but what we will do is we'll take twenty percent in script, 
But what, what you what need does to that do, mean, script? Yeah, so that's shares in their shares. company. Got it. Okay. So, so uh, and we say, look, we love your strategy, but strategy is one thing, execution's another. Um, we're going to flip the table. You now need to come back and organize a time and present to us and explain how you're going to execute against that strategy so we know that you know, effectively at that time we're buying into them, that you know, we're, we're partnering with the, with the right people as well. And so, and so that, was, that was what we did. It's, it's a bit difficult to do the DD like that. You, know, you sort of have to you know, trust what you're hearing is, is accurate. Uh, but we also had faith that, look, you know, strategy and execution was something that we were really good at anyway, and so that was something that we'd be able to assist them with and 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 have. Got it. The other offer that came through, uh, how did it compare to Zenitas? Yeah, it was actually higher, uh, and this one this one wasn't a. Uh, it was a well-known brand within the aged care space, but it was a competitor, and um, it just I. It just meant that what we were going to end up doing was like they, they were buying us and they would have said, look, and this is what they should have done. You guys continue to do podiatry and we're just going to funnel all these services through you. And, and really, you know, the, the, the three things that I wanted from the sale, let's see if I can recall these, was obviously, you know, we wanted to be compensated appropriately. Um but we also, um, I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, my management team and our team were, were kept on and, uh, you know, uh, everybody was treated, um, you know, well. But we also wanted, you know, we had these really capable people and I wanted them to have an opportunity to do different things and to see this simple brand. You know, we're, as I said, we were a logistics company. We'd been doing podiatry for just 20 years. There were so many different things that we could do and so, you um, so with Zenitas, yeah, it was it was less money, but it was the opportunity to get in, be part of their business, influence where this thing went, and start to drive yeah their whole mobile division of their company, which is you know potentially yeah, enormous. So yeah. But Damien, you're an entrepreneur. I mean, <laughs> from like the age of eleven, you started your first business. Uh, you brought in Nick, and you went down to a day a week. I mean, you. you I, I struggle to think you're planning to work in this company for that long. Why, why wouldn't you just take the higher offer and bolt? Oh, look, they, um, well, because it wasn't, uh, it wasn't aligned with my values. Like one of my values is fairness and that just didn't feel fair to our team. You know, they, they, they'd helped us get to this great place and it meant that they were just going to be doing the same thing over and over again and they would have left. It, it wouldn't have been a, a good deal for for anyone. Um, in terms of, you know, you know, Zenitas did offer me a job and, you know, I, I hadn't had a job since I was a checkout chick when I was <laughs> 16. So, so you know, I, I wasn't too keen on that. I did uh, say to them, look, I, you know, the, the pay looks great. Um, yeah, I'm happy to work three days a week as a consultant for the first three months and then a strategic consultant one day a week after that. Um, and so I have been having input uh, in that regard. Um, but no, we've been really comfortable with the decision. Look, the, you know, the share price, you know, I think it went from, we got our shares at 99 cents and bumped up to like $1.35 on the back of our acquisition. And yeah, I think there's a lot of blue sky for this uh, this opportunity. So, to be honest, when we made the 
the deal, uh, Nick and I were commercially probably more excited by the shares that we have in Zenitas and you know where this where this company you know can go. I think that this company can do some some great things for uh, Australia, but I think that commercially, you know, if it does do that, then it'll uh, you know uh, all, all the shareholders will be super happy as well. What was the difference between the higher offer and the one you accepted in terms of percentage terms? Yeah, it was about uh, it was probably about twenty percent. So it was, it was a yeah, yeah. I didn't know we were allowed to swear on this podcast, but uh, that's probably a reason to. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Look, there were a few other things as well. Um, there was a, a yeah. One of the caveats on it was that the deal had to be done in in October, and you know we were uh, yeah. This is back in July and August, and so if you accept that. And then you get there and for whatever reason it doesn't end up going through, then it just gets really, really messy. So um, I won't say what that company is, but um, we are now in a position to acquire them. So um, it's sort of it's, – it's gone full circle. So we'll see what happens there. Were there any tricks that were were used on you? I mean, you, you sound like a pretty savvy guy, and I don't think it would be easy to pull the wool over your eyes. But were were there any attempts through the process, either in the management team or the you know the letters of intent, anywhere along the way, where it, the acquirers tried to kind of get one over on you using kind of a trick or a yeah a ploy? Um, look, there was there was. One and I, look, I don't know if it was a dirty trick or if it was someone being a, a dirty pragmatist. Um, as a business, we have a national conference where you know we bring all of our 63, 65 odd podiatrists all around Australia. We take them off the tools, bring everybody together, um, and we'd spend three days together. Um, you know, we'd provide um, professional development. We'd talk about, you know, where the business was at and where we were going. And, you know, we did a lot of team bonding and, and cultural activities. And so it was a good investment. But, it, you know, everybody's still being paid a wage, but there's no income producing activities. And so that's a, you know, a pretty expensive three days. And uh, I don't know if it was deliberate, but the acquirer did delay the transaction till just after that happened. And so as the sellers, you know, we had to to bear that that cost, and so, look, you know, if that was a deliberate ploy, you know, I tip my hat to them. It was a, you know, it was a, a pretty nice move. So, um, but that, that that's about it, mate. Got it. Were there any trophies that that you or or Nick bought yourself after the transaction? Uh, no, mate. Um, look, I. Uh, I don't know where your listeners are from around the world, but if any of them are from uh, Victoria, they'll they'll know that uh, Richmond Footy Club won the uh, premiership in September. So we sold the business in August, and then in September, you know, we won the premiership for the first time in 37 years. And I've been a a very passionate and long-suffering Richmond supporter. I always said that if we ever got into a grand final, I'd need to take medical supervision because if we won, <laughs> I'd need help. If we lost. I'd need help, and uh, we ended up winning. So, you know, like August, sell the business. September, Richmond wins the grand final. Um, the trophy was basically a 12-week-long party that just seemed to increase in, t- in intensity 
uh, with every week, and you know it was uh, it was bloody awesome, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enormously grateful to uh, have experienced it all and to actually have lived through it as well, because it was uh, yeah it was a pretty crazy period. So so for me that was the reward. Um, Nick is a little more uh, pragmatic and, and barracks for a team that's far less successful than my own. <laughs> for the record. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so he bought a uh, caravan. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. There you go. Which, 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 which I've got to say he loved. You know, he, he took the family away and uh, it was fantastic. So, um, yeah, we both, uh, got, both got uh, uh, some nice rewards there. I've got a serious question for you. So it's um, here we are. So this was 2017. You mentioned it was August, September when they won. You partied for 12 weeks. It's now Christmas. So here we are recording this in March of 2018. You've been to the top of the mountain. You've sold your company. How does it feel? Well, now, um, look, it's 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 challenging. Like it's. yeah, I've I've really missed it. Uh, you know, Ray Dalio talks about the value of you know meaningful work and building meaningful relationships. And you know, as a company, that's what we really did. And you know, that was that was really rewarding. I, you know, I absolutely love that. So, um, and, and I'd been I'm part of Entrepreneurs Organisation and and have a, a fantastic forum who you know are, are also. Uh, you know, a part of the reason why we managed to get this result. Some of the, the feedback that I got from those guys and girls is just fantastic. But one thing they shared with me was, you know, some of them had sold businesses or seen their dad sell businesses and said, look, you know, just be aware that, you know, you might go a bit stir crazy when you sell it. And I was sort of thinking, oh, look, I've only been working a day a week. I'll, I'll be fine. But, uh, yeah, once the dust settled after that, you know, celebration period, um, it was it was difficult. I, you know, I, it was hard to turn the mind off the, the 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 cut and thrust of you know running an entrepreneurial organisation is you know it's pretty intoxicating stuff. And to go from doing that um, to to not doing that, you know, has has been a significant um, challenge. So I've just tried to I've tried to find a focus that's non-commercial. You know. I, it's hard to stop the brain and hard to stop looking at opportunities, and, and I am doing doing that. Um, but I've had to find a focus that's not commercially related, and, and sort of put my energy and time into that. And so, uh, so what I've you know just been doing, I've always been into you know training at the gym and um, you know cardio and, and all that. Have just really dialed up that, and yeah, you know, I'm. Um, I'm proud to say that I've joined a yoga studio. I'm I'm the male in there. Uh, I I really struggle. Um, it's a very humbling experience, but it's uh, it's something that you know it's it's a bit of a new journey as well. So so it has been a challenge, but uh, I feel like I'm I'm starting to you know transition through that now. Do you regret the decision itself? No, oh, no way, mate. It was uh, selling the business, you know. Great result, um, you know, lots of opportunity ahead of us. You know, the team's happy, you know, Nick got rewarded. It's a great story. It is a great story, and I appreciate you sharing with us. Thanks for joining us.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.